I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Places, everyone, it's time for... The Connor and Smith Show! Thank you, places! Okay, so we are redoing an episode that we had previously done. Wait, why are we redoing it? There was some weird sound issues. Okay, so first of all, we're talking to Paris Barclay, who is a two-time Emmy Award winner, eight-time nominee. Uh, To clear things up, we are not. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not. He is. He is. And uh, the sound quality was... The first time. The first time was not great. And I think I was just like, uh, I'm so lucky to talk to Paris that this is okay. Um, But Paris so astutely as a director and mentor said... Said no. Yeah. Not good enough. We're going to redo this. So this is a Paris redo. It's a redo, and I'm so glad because I think the interview was... It's an updo. It's, it's an updo. I think the interview went so much better, and he had more things to talk about on uh, subjects that he talked about in the last interview. So what we're going to do is delete the last interview and put a relink and to this one. This is the redo. This so is... if you listen to the old do, you need to listen to the redo. Yeah. Um, so Paris... Thank you for uh, being as astute as you are and redoing, updoing with us. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And taking the time not only once, but twice. But twice to be with us. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hi, how are you? Happy birthday. Thank you very much, my friend. Your birthday is very close to mine, you know. When is yours? Aha. Yes, we, we enjoy like the, the 4th of July kind of timing. <laughs> yes, we do. It's special. <laughs> mm. um, I'm sitting here with Matthew. Hi, Hi, Matthew. Matthew, do you have your Helen Hayes near you? <laughs> At all times. Yeah, I turn into a brooch. <laughs> you should have it standing by for every interview just to give you solace. <laughs> just so the neighbors say, oh, yeah, they, they really are somebody. <laughs> They're special. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paris, um, I want to start in a different place this time. Just for Uh-oh. those of you listening, we had some sound issues last time, and we decided we loved each other that much. We'd try it again, erase the other recording, and just turn a new page. So that's why Paris is joining us again. For the revival. Yes. <laughs> um, so the first Broadway revival of a podcast. Yes. I, somebody had to do it, Paris. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start with what is happening now, because when we left you the last time, you said you were about to start working on Monster with Ryan Murphy. Um, yes. How has that been going? I'm in the middle of the first of two episodes I'm doing, and it's been amazing. It's been one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do because, you know, I'm not a horror person, and I'm not, um, you know, really into scary movies. I don't like to be scared, and this is very scary. Um, Dealing with Jeffrey Dahmer is a very scary subject, and this deals with him and his victims very, very closely. So it's been quite a trip for me. It's expanded my horizons as a director, that's for sure. 
Yeah, and I'm sure any chance to work with Ryan Murphy is a yes, sign me up. <laughs> well, Ryan has been a good luck charm for me. He's gotten me two Emmy nominations when I worked with him on Glee, and this is the first time we're back together again since then. Yeah, so it's a, it's like a happy homecoming. Um, and and so this is in filming now, so it probably won't be out for some time. But um, Yeah, the way Netflix works, we'll film all the episodes. Uh, this summer we'll finish them maybe. It'll probably be out early 2022. Exciting. Nice. Um, and that is uh, that's that's one of your collaborations with with um, Ryan Murphy. But you you named uh, another Glee, which we didn't get to talk about last time. Let's, no, we did, but we will today. Yes, let's get into the Glee of it all. Um, <laughs> first of all, just one of the most beloved series, right? Um, I certainly loved it. I don't know about anybody else. Well, I think I, something tells me it was kind of popular. I mean, right? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I think people have heard of it and know what it is. Um, well, it, it was like, for those of us who love musicals, like you, like you gentlemen and I, it was sort of a, a, a confluence of great things. I mean, Ryan loves musicals and also he loves people in musical theaters. So he kept bringing different talent to it and, um, you know, his Ryan Murphy perspective to that whole world. And it was pretty fantastic, actually. And the cast. Oh, my the cast gosh. Kept getting greater and greater. I mean, Matt Morrison is fantastic and has such a beautiful voice. But then, you know, there's Leah Michelle, who is, as we like to say, a force of nature. That goes all sorts of different ways, if you really think about a force of nature. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> but I also got to work with Kristen Chenoweth. She was in a couple of, I did nine episodes and she was in, I think two or three of them. And she is something, I mean, if you've ever been near her or on stage with her, she really turns everything into jewels. It's just like Kunigunde. Everything she does is like that. And, and the genius of Jane Lynch. <laughs> um, the kind of genius. My fourth job with Jane Lynch, she's done a number of been and so I worked with her a lot and she's always great and I got to do one episode where she got to sing Little Girls from Annie which was fantastic to have her doing that number which has always been a favorite of mine um, so that, that's part of the joy of Glee you get to have you know Kristen Chenoweth got to sing Home from the Wiz in an episode that I did and it was absolutely fantastic so you get this great combination of performers and great songs that Ryan thinks would be appropriate for them. You're like a kid in a candy store I mean all the great it, things, all the fun. It was good, yes, but it also had all the darkness. I mean, in the middle of it, you know, we lost uh, Corey Monteith, and that was a struggle for the cast and the crew to get over it. That made that season, I think it was around season four or five. I can't remember if it was four or five, somewhere in there. That just changed the whole quality of the show and how we dealt with each other. And in many ways, we came closer together, but in many ways, it was the beginning of the end. So um, it had darkness, too. So it's really like a good musical in that, you know, it's a comedy and it's delightful, but it has this underpinning that of reality that you can't escape. And it, it, it's it's kind of it's not um, not similar to but reminds me of some of the content or uh, similarity to another show we didn't get to talk about last time. Smash. Yes. Smash. Smash. What an experiment that was. An experiment in terror. <laughs> uh, Smash, I came into the first season. I can't remember exactly which episode it was. But unfortunately for me, it was the episode where the uh, story was that they threw out the score 
that Mark Shaman had done. And uh, Mark Shaman and tell me, I, and now his name is escaping me, the, his lyricist partner is, you guys should know this, Jeff, there are role models for you. Jeff Witte, isn't it? No, not Jeff Witte. That's Avenue Q. Oh, okay. Um, um, uh, Mark Shaman and, oh, wow, well, it'll come to us. But anyway, their score is replaced by a Ryan Tedder of One Republic score in the episode that I'm doing. So they were pretty furious about that. Apparently it was an idea that Steven Spielberg had had originally for an episode and they did it. And suddenly the show becomes this rock show and they did a whole presentation of it, or at least part of it as a rock show. And it was pretty scandalous. So fortunately I had Brian Darcy James singing and, you know, I had a couple of other numbers in it, but it was the one episode that didn't have the Broadway panache of smash that I actually really loved. It was the one that had the, their attempt to become more relevant and contemporary by ditching the old style musical score for a rock and roll score. So Scott Whitman was the name we were looking Scott for. Scott Whitman, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Sorry. Now, 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 now Paris, when you're doing a musical number for television, do you uh, have one clean vocal track that you love that will you know you have at least to use that you like so when you're rehearsing the singers don't have to constantly be singing full out do they do you lip sync sometimes just to get different shots how does that work well it depends on the number in my episode i only had three musical numbers one was touch me which was um the ryan tedder rock number that was pre-recorded entirely and she totally lip synced to it because of the production of it and the sound that they wanted but then i had three little birds which brian darcy james sang which was sort of a remake of of that old reggae song and brian darcy james sang it live to a track when we did it and that that's the way that he performed it part of it is it was a comedy number with deborah messing and and you know it's brian darcy james so he could do that and then we had dance to the music which leslie odom jr sang in that episode in a bowling alley with lots of his friends while bowling. And that was a whole choreographed musical number. So that had to be pre-recorded in advance, choreographed within an inch of its life. They actually danced down the bowling lane. It's quite a good number if you look at it. And Leslie was amazing in it. So it kind of just depended upon what the needs were of the, the song. Of course. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, I, I was trying to think, so you, I'm, I, I'm stuck on Jane Lynch for a second. Lots of people get stuck on Jane Lynch. You said you've worked with her four times. So we're talking Glee. Is West Wing one of them? I don't think I worked with her in West Wing. We did a pilot together called, um, gosh, what was the name of it? Um, The Big Time, which is a pilot for TNT, which she played just a receptionist. Um, what were the other things I did with Jane? I don't know, but I remember just talking about it. it was the fourth time that we had actually worked together on stuff. And now, now it's eluding me because my career is so vast and my memory is so faded. But I, I thought there's something in my head made me want to say that she was on West Wing at some point. Well, that would someone would have to look that up right now on their IMDb Pro and, and call in. our producers getting on it Um, where's the producer when you need them i he's sitting right next to me um (laughs) so so the 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 i guess since we've already said west wing we can say west wing um which which will which will bring us to dc and then we can kind of do a little one red flower stuff but i like the way we're going to dc this is nice we're traveling to dc as we speak the West Wing. Uh, you've heard of it. It's uh, it's 
it's a it's my mom's favorite show uh ever um she is always she watches she watched it a lot during the trump years to kind of escape into a better world <laughs> um mm. And, a lot and of I, people did that. It became much more popular during Trump time. People would go at night and watch the West Wing and just sigh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that, that I heard that quite a lot. I had a producer on on the show I was working on, Station 19, who just binged the West Wing constantly to stay sane. I, for me, I did a lot of um, Obama era shows like that I loved during Obama era, and I didn't really <laughs> figure that out until later. I was like, oh. I'm really getting into watching Downton Abbey again because it makes me feel like we're back in the Obama years. Um, but the, the West Wing is interesting because it was really like, a, and just going back to the theater, it was really like a Shakespearean script in that as many stage directions as you see in a Shakespeare play, that's about what Aaron Sorkin wrote. They walk and talk, he puts his feet on the desk, you know, they move through the hall. All of that action was invented by the directors. So he just wrote pretty much the dialogue. He would write interior Oval Office, and then there would be the dialogue. And then you'd come there and say, well, how am I going to keep this alive? And who moves what? So all that moving about and hallway walking was really the invention of Tommy Schlamy. And then later, each of the directors that went there put their own spin on it. So it was kind of interesting. It was like it was like a Shakespeare play. A different director would have done it in a completely different way. They might have all been just sitting still. But the West Wing came alive because Tommy contributed that whole idea that it would be constantly in motion. That's that's so I, that's first of all, I mean, what a great writer. My God, uh, just a master. Everything he does. I'm such a fan of. I love Sorkin. Um, but there's so many words. That's the thing. There's just so many words. He's like Mozart. It's just a lot of words. Um, there was a, a, a story I heard about Rob Lowe did a production of, um, oh, A Few Good Men and totally went up on one of his long wordy speeches and decided to walk straight downstage like he was thinking about something and paced a little and held the tension. <laughs> like, he's like, all I can think about is this sea of words in my head. And I'm it trying was. to reach for one. They were super dense, but you know what? And and they were unintelligible in some cases. And what was great about the actors, you know, they just decided that they didn't have to know what they meant. They just said them. They just trusted Aaron that he knew what they meant and the writers that helped Aaron to sort of supply all the stories and the real information. So they just sang the song as if they knew what it was. So a lot of times when you're lost in the West Wing, you can count on the fact that the, act the actors are probably lost too. They're just feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and we said if we were more the more confused we got, we said, well, we'll just say it faster. <laughs> say it faster and it'll be okay. Oh my God. That's Allison Janney was a master of that. She said, I don't know what this is about. I don't know what we're talking about. I'm just gonna say it really fast. And that's what she did. <laughs> Allison Janney. The Ugh. best. Ugh. One of the best actors I've ever worked with in my entire career. And I, I told her to her face, I said, if I see your number on the call sheet, and I think she was number four or five on the West Wing, I know that I'm going to have a good day. I know that it'll be okay because she is so fantastic. I love her. Um, actually thought about you a lot recently. I was reading a book uh, by Andrew McCarthy. Um, Ooh, he wrote a book? He's written several. Oh, um, wow. I'm impressed. 
this is the this is called Brat, an '80s story, um, that kind of goes through his little acting career and uh, drugs and alcohol into like TV directing and stuff like that. But there was a lot of stuff about TV directing that he was talking about. It made me think about you, um, and I I guess where we met, you and I was. Speaking of D.C., segue just out of D.C. past the National Cemetery into Arlington, Virginia, and the Signature Theater in 2004 um, in One Red Flower, uh, a musical yeah. that you wrote. Yes, I had written the book music and lyrics of it, you know, maybe 10 years before. I actually started writing in 1986, but um, Eric Schaefer had seen or heard of it. I'm not quite sure how he actually got in touch with it now that I think about it. But he became kind of obsessed with it. And we did a reading one year. And then the next season, we brought it uh, to life on the stage. And it still is sort of the definitive production of the play. Thank you, Stephen Gregory Smith. Oh, I think, although it wasn't the world premiere that we did at North Shore Music Theater, it was the it was the production that got closest to what I wanted the show to be. I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is me totally just like navel gazing and guessing. But before that season, when we did that show, uh, we we were doing a revival of Allegro by Rodgers and Hammerstein. And Dina Hammerstein came and her guest was Maureen McGovern. Oh, wow. And I'm wondering if that was the connection. Huh, that would be interesting. Maureen McGovern did appear in the very first production we did and several productions since, by the way. She's come back to the show over time. And uh, Most recently, we did a reading of it to benefit a veterans organization and she came back and, and did the role. So maybe she mentioned it. Uh, that, that would be great because she's, you know, her voice is just, um, you know, it's just a bell. It's just so perfect. And she's quite a good actor, too. So she was impressive. Maybe that's how it happened. I don't know. I just kind of I just put that together for first time ever, and it's probably not even true. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but it's a small world. Uh, Flo Lacey Stella played her part in uh, our production. Mm -hmm. Very well, Miss Flo, the longest running Evita on on the planet. Um, <laughs> who is still? I call her on Mother's Day every year, and I still call her Mama. Um, Yes, and she looked the most like the real person, Eleanor Wimbish, that she was playing, who actually came to see the performance, if you remember this. Eleanor Wimbish, who, who wrote the Wimbish letter, which is a, a letter that ends the play, or is very near the end of the play, in which a mother goes to the wall and, and, and reads this letter that she had written to her lost son. Um, it's very famous in, in Vietnam literature. And Eleanor Wimbish came to see the play and was incredibly touched by Flo. And, and I, I think I may have taken a picture of the two of them together. I have to dig through it. But she really resembled her. And um, we just lost her a few years uh, a few years ago, too. But it was, it was a, a powerful moment. It must have been for you guys to be performing it for the person who actually was such a part of the story. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, that's what was different about the entire show was um... – just knowing, I mean, and we live so close to the wall and the, the cemetery and like it, it's it's overwhelming. And I and I think this it was a perfect place to have a production of that show where you were going to your audiences were going to be just I mean, and you can do that show anywhere. But it was just so perfect, like in the shadow of the you know Vietnam War Memorial, basically. 
Um, and I love that we went to, to visit it and we all took etchings and all that other stuff from that you do from the wall. But I kept thinking every time the play is done, which, you know, it, it gets done every once in a while, it's, it's overdue for a redo now. But I keep thinking, here we are just enacting and reciting and breathing into these letters that were written during the Vietnam War, a new life and reminding people of, you know, the horrors of war while we're in a musical. And I always thought, you know, you guys love musicals and, and I do too, but I always think there's a higher purpose to them when they actually can get into your skin and, and, you know, assassins is this way for me too. And Sweeney Todd for that moment, for that matter, where it just sort of rocks you in a different way. Um, so that's one of the things I want musical and it's it's unusual form because it's mostly epistolary as they say letters being just sort of flung at the audience <laughs> with different levels of emotion and songs where the actors come together and 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 share experiences it's sort of unusual in its form but i just i'm super proud of it because i have gotten a lot of letters since that show about how much it moved them and especially from young people about how it really opened their eyes to what was going on at that time well, so many people here in Washington still talk about One Red Flower um, and how much it really moved them or how much they remember so much about the show. And I remember so much about the music. I remember so much of the imagery that Eric put. I remember even feeling, I think, some sort of helicopter or some sort of wind or vibration. Or yeah, he had, a, he had a helicopter and wind sound that that he utilized so that very well. I mean, and in that space, the lighting and the way those things came together was incredibly moving. Um, so his production of it really helped to crystallize and emotionally bring a lot of that stuff to life. Yeah, and when the audience loses themselves with the piece and the performers lo lose themselves in the piece and it all levitates with the book and the music and just transports you, it becomes almost like a, a spiritual movement altogether in that one evening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's what you want. I mean, that's what you really want to accomplish in these things. Um, hang on for a second. Sir, there's someone sleeping in there. Could you just lay that down? Sorry, I'm having laundry delivered right now. And uh, No worries. While I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> as you do. Yes, as you do occasionally when you're in a hotel in Hawaii, which is where I am. Oh, fantastic. Yes, I'm on vacation in Waikiki Beach, which is a long way from Vietnam, but um, nevertheless, uh, an emotional journey. Right. So I think, Paris, last time you had mentioned that there was uh, you were exploring possibilities of turning One Red Flower into something new. Any news on that front? Yeah, I'm working with Brian Yorkie, you guys know from Next to Normal. Uh, he did 13 Reasons Why for Netflix. I'm working for Netflix now, doing Monster with Ryan. And I'm hoping that all these elements can come together. I don't have, you know, a deal signed. But my idea is that all of it would come together and we do a production for television. The trick is Brian and I need to figure out how to do that production. Because one of the things we've learned from the signature and from other productions is sometimes less is more. And, you know, trying to set it actually in Vietnam and make it practical and realistic might not be the way to convey this piece. So we're just trying to right now figure out exactly how we want to present it. And then we'll go to the powers that be and see if they'll 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 finance us. Yeah, um, I'm sure you have lots of different concepts and things in mind um, to well, kind do you of have any because we'll take any concepts you think. Yeah, I'll draft a few things. Send me your way. Yeah, would you? <laughs> Has the beautiful score stayed intact? 
Yeah, the score stayed intact. I've redone the opening number because I've never been happy with the opening number. Um, so I've redone it and funkified it a bit. But um, and and Brian likes some of the songs that were cut out over the many, many years of development. So just like, you know, happens with revivals, he's going through the old cutout songs and he's going to reconsider uh, whether or not some might be worth putting back in for various reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There, there is enough. There's almost an entire another score that has been cut out over time. Oh, wow. Time. Yeah. I, I, I know a few of them. <laughs> you do? Yeah. yeah. Did we cut things I, at the signature? Did we actually cut things at the signature? I can't remember. I remember doing a song in the workshop about me having a baby boy. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm a daddy. I love that song. Baby, I'm a da daddy or something like that. Yeah. And that song was very meaningful to me because I think it was during the, the signature presentation, which is when we, we got our first child. Yeah. We adopted our first baby boy. And you guys all signed my poster, which is behind my desk in my office at home, um, because I'm a daddy was, you know, the play on words that everyone couldn't resist in their signatures. Um, so it's a special time for me. But now now those kids are 16 and 18. So wow. it's a ago. The last time we talked, girls, you said that you had sort of an interesting uh, relationship with uh, Stephen Sondheim in, in your work and... Yeah, speaking of assassins and Sweeney Todd, and this this goes back to your time with the uh, ASCAP workshop, right? Yeah, actually, you know, I was thinking about that since we talked, and actually, I, I, I met Sondheim when I was in college. I actually met him at Harvard when he came to speak to a group of Harvard students when Pacific Overtures was trying out in Boston. And we went to see Pacific Overtures, which I thought was spectacular, by the way. I and I it. still love it to this day. The score is so beautiful. And I met him then and my then boyfriend, because, of course, I had a boyfriend because it's 1976 and uh, <laughs> and I'm 20 and I'm 20 years old. Um, so, so he said, to Steve, would you sign my playbill? Because I was very shy and he did. And then he said, can I write you? And then Stephen gave him his address, which I remember to this day, which I won't recite for those of you who don't know his address. It's still where he resides. And I wrote him a letter and we started sort of a correspondence because he responded to every letter you write him. If you guys have ever written Sondheim, he responds, at least as recently as 10 years ago, which is the last time I probably written him. So we had a correspondence. And then when I came to New York, um, he showed up at the ASCAP Musical Theater Workshop when I was doing my first presentation of a show I did called Almost a Man, which is based on a Richard Wright short story. And he managed to sort of stay, you know, in my radar, showing up at cabarets that I would do or appearing at the ASCAP workshop. And then we'd go out with Jonathan Larson and other people who were in the workshop at that time and, and have drinks. And it was a ton of fun. Um, but he's also, you know, a dark character. So you get to see the dark side of Stephen the more, the more you spend time with him. Um, I eventually did a workshop of a musical called On Hold with Music at the ASCAP. No, it wasn't at ASCAP. It was at the Manhattan Theater Club. And this had Terry Burrell in it, your former podcast mate. Yeah. Uh, the late Ray Gill, who was wonderful. Uh, John Dossett, who I believe is still working to this day. Maureen Brennan, another fine Kunigunde, because I love Kunigundes. And Jason Alexander. And it was all about my life working in advertising, which was my job at the time. And Sondheim came to it, and he got through it. And then he didn't talk to me after. But the next day, he gave me a, an hour, hour and 15-minute taught me most of what I really learned about musical theater in that call. And it was brutal. 
I mean, he was savage about the piece and how, why it didn't work and what I could have done better and slightly disappointed in me, but at the same time encouraging in that, you know, sardonic Sondheim way that led me to, uh, to keep doing other work. So he stayed in touch and I stayed in touch. I went to see Sunday in the Park with George, the very first reading at, at Playwrights Horizons when it was wow. only one in. It was just one act. That's all he had. And they presented it. It was pretty, the first act is pretty devastating. And when it ends with Sunday, you think, you know, this is a great, great musical. And he said, it's not done yet. I'm so disappointed. And why are you guys here? And <laughs> we were like, but we just, it, it opened and we wanted to see it. And he said, there's a new song I'm working on, which I think will bring the whole thing into focus. And that song was what, gentlemen? Move on? No. Putting it together? No. Oh, God. No, what? Children in art. He didn't have finishing the hat. In the oh. show. And he wrote finishing the hat. And that for him was the song that, you know, really broke the psyche of his lead character and really told you what he wanted to, to say about the show. Um, so, yeah, sometimes I, I wouldn't say we're buddies or besties. We had many a disagreement, but uh, he was usually right. And that's sometime for you. Yeah, um, I, I I just was thinking like, oh my god, what song is it? Is this some obscure trivia? Is it Chromalume Seven? You know? <laughs> no, it was finishing the hat. And when and when we saw it, and and when Mandy actually sang it, you just went, I don't know. Sometimes people sing a particular song, and it fits them so perfectly, and then fits the moment so perfectly that you think this is why I'm in the musical theater. This is exactly why to create moments like this where, you know, it just takes your breath away. Right. Um, and, and that was one of those times that, that it just, I just thought, you know, there there's just can't be another Sondheim. It's just, it's just what he does is at such a different level. And I think um, as time goes on and people go back and back and back to his work, they're going to find, you know, deeper and greater significance to the stuff he's done. Mm -hmm. I was just watching actually this morning, um, rewatching because I've seen it before, the uh, Six by Sondheim, the uh, HBO special. Mm -hmm. uh, and God, I just, it's just a masterclass um, listening to even his process and everything. Um, and now I'm also picturing you and Jonathan Larson and Stephen Sondheim having drinks. And that's <laughs> kind of an incredible scene as well. Yeah. Um, Jonathan was was an incredible person, and you know the tick tick boom. Jonathan Larson is really pretty much who you see, and I'm super excited about the movie of that coming out. By the way, um, it looks really cool that Lin Manuel Miranda directed. Apparently, um, I'm super excited about it. But you know, generous soul. I mean, he is everything that Rent is, and he wasn't writing Rent at the time. He was writing a piece that he wrote before Rent about. You know, I can't remember. It's about a club or bouncers or something. And I was in one of the readings of it. And he's also a great musical director. I mean, he taught the music as a musical director would, as if he hadn't written it. So it was really just a very interesting and lovely person. Um, and his death was devastating to to all of us graduates of the ASCAP Musical Theater Program because he was like one of the big successes. Um, I was actually the first person to get a production out of that program with Almost a Man. But he was the one who, you know, obviously got the Pulitzer Prize. I got to play him in Tick, Tick, Boom here in D.C. Uh, uh, that must have been fun. Have you seen the trailer for Tick, Tick, Boom? For the oh, movie? God, it looks it looks incredible. Yeah, it looks great. I mean, I'm just I'm super excited about it. Um, 
But, you know, musical theater is having its moment now. So maybe we'll all be able to have jobs all the time. It's like a second golden age. <laughs> not, um, not in the theater, though, but just in different and certainly in film. It seems to have broken through where now the music can work in many, many different ways. Um, once showed that and obviously La La Land and there's just different ways for this to happen. If you saw In the Heights, I thought that was fantastic. Old and new put together in a great way. Um, Paris, I know, I know the, the prequel to this podcast. Yeah. We had spoken about your process as a, um, a composer. Um, what, what is, what, 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 yeah, what was, what, what was your training in an instrument? Is everything sort of by ear? Do you hum in the shower and then try to record it? What do you do when you're working? Well, I'm a little bit like Bill Finn um, in that way, in that I never took a piano lesson, but I do play the piano. And while I wouldn't, won't say I play the piano very well, I taught myself the piano and I taught myself the guitar and I taught myself the organ and I taught myself a number of musical instruments. So I had a knack and an ability to sort of pick them up. And and once I taught myself to read music, I could then translate that into whatever I wanted. And I was so passionate about this from seventh grade on that I just spent hours and hours and hours doing it. So when I'm writing a song now for the for the um, uh, musical theater, um, it always starts with an idea. And it usually, for me, starts with an image um, and sometimes with a line, just a single word, sort of like a, a, a pop composer would. Another thing that Sondheim faults me for, because I do sort of start from a central idea or line, the song, If You Are Able, in, in uh, One Red Flower, also known as Letters from Nam, was a poem. And that was easy because the lyrics were done and I just structured them and, and set them to music. But if I were to have written a lyric, I would have started with that line, if you are able. That would have been the first thing I would have set, and that would have been how I would have begun the whole thing. And I usually sit at the piano and do it. Um, I, I, I now have, you know, you know different um, composing um, computer programs that I utilize. But back in the day, I would sit in there and, and scratch it out with a mechanical pencil. Sometimes I used real pencils. I really like mechanical pencils. Another thing we argued about. <laughs> um, but I use mechanical pencils and I would first write it down just as chords, which Sondheim also criticized me for because he said I, I was too chord oriented and, and therefore things ended up too much in root position and I didn't write across the lines and all this being true. So after a while, then I started to write it down and, uh, eventually I could write pretty fast. Um, you know, first as scrawls, sort of like the things you see that Beethoven would do. And then I would rewrite the whole thing neatly. Um, once the song was completed. Um, but I tended to write the music and the lyrics somewhat simultaneously. Um, I, I tended to write if I'm one red flower is a little different because I was using letters. But if I'm writing a musical that I'm actually sort of generating, I write the music and lyrics simultaneously. Then I go off and write the complete lyric because once I've set the structure of the song, then I, you know, the rhyme scheme and what it's going to be, then I write the complete lyric and then I go back and finish the music. It's That's interesting. Kind of I, I in the six by Sondheim, he says that basically when he's writing just by himself, which after a certain point, that's kind of what it was, music and lyrics. Um, he took advice. Sondheim took advice from Cole Porter of and does Cole's process, which was he takes a piece of paper. He writes the title of the song and then lets the title of the song inform the rhythm of the phrase and everything else. Um, six, six, but I guess that's what I do. Hey, I, I'm doing the right thing. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, but the, I don't necessarily, it isn't necessarily the title for me, although often it is. Sometimes it's just whatever is the central image because sometimes it's not the title. Right. And what's funny is when I saw that, and even though I've seen Six by Six before, um, I, that's exactly what I do and what Matt does. So I guess that's just a good and simple way to map out your process. Um, yeah, but, and but then I also have Sondheim ringing in my ears, which really hurt me in One Red Flower, because Sondheim also believes that the song can't end in the same place that the song began. The song has to move the story along. And the songs in One Red Flower more or less were emotional situations. And so it was tough for me to conform to that rule of Sondheim's, which I think is generally a very good rule in a music theater, musical theater, and still deliver the kinds of songs that I wanted to deliver. So it's tricky, you know. I, how do you guys feel about that? Do you, do you believe that the song can't begin where it ends? I think it's an individual basis. What do you say, hon? I do. I find that drawing rules like that with a period is tough because I feel like there's a lot of commas when you're creating like a specific show with a different um, journey. I mean, I, no, I don't agree. <laughs> there you go. You can take that up with Steven. But, but, you know, I'm also still renting. So who am I? <laughs> well, I think that I think the difference is, and maybe there are examples of this in our work. Sometimes the song itself is uh, the the action of what's happening actually is in total opposition to what we're singing, or what you know the song is about, mm -hmm. and and yeah. There's several yeah, songs. I like that too. I mean, the opening song in One Red Flower, I was there, was always meant to be a travelogue. It was always meant to get them from where they were as young, new recruits to, to Vietnam. And that's not in the song. The song is just them reflecting about having been in Vietnam. But the, uh, the song was always imagined to be staged as, you know, everything from basic training to when they actually got to Vietnam and they landed there. And it was to end kind of in the haze of them coming off the plane. Um, but it was never it's not in the lyrics in the song itself. It's actually in the staging. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's God. It's a it's a massive opening um, sequence. There's a lot to, to, to relay in that. And it's cinematic in my mind. Um, even the, the little aside, like, dear dad, I've been writing. Ba, 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 yeah, exactly. Which was one of the late uh, obscure things in the middle of it. We just wanted to have a letter. And I can't remember what production this came in. It might have been the original production, actually. We wanted there to be specifically a letter in that opening number that told you you're going to hear letters today. You know, it's one of those, that's another rule that, you know, your opening should have the DNA of the whole show. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Shipped off to Vietnam and also just to give the whole thing a form. Um, but, you know, such, such are the rules of musical theater to be adhered to as we wish. Yeah, it, that was one of the hard, I'm not trying to get back to One Red Flower because I really want to explore your first musical um I think it's called My Life is a Warlock or <laughs> something like that. Well, um, when we last spoke, I gave you the wrong title. It was actually called Time for Living. I listened <laughs> to it and I said, it's not called It's Fun Being a Warlock. It's called Time for Living. This is a seventh grade musical I wrote. It's Fun Being a Warlock was one of the very few original songs I wrote for myself <laughs> to sing as the warlock. But it was called Time for Living, which is an association song. 
which was the song at the very end of the show where the warlock finally realizes that he has to, you know, eschew his life of, of witchery and instead embrace humanity. Um, but that was my seventh grade musical attempt, and the, the whole class was forced to see it in the basement of Ascension Grade School in Harvey, Illinois. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I just wish that's how the film is going to start out. Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, well, I did a podcast with Brian Koppelman, who is insisting that I have to write my memoirs because I've intersected with so many people in a zealot-like way. But I just don't feel like it. I think yeah. I'll just do podcasts and talk about bits and pieces of it and leave it at that. To write a whole memoir would be exhausting. And I'd probably just spend the time crying and dissolved into a puddle of tears. So what you do is you keep doing podcasts. Then you hire somebody to just write them out. And chapter form, and then you're done. Yeah, that's a big. Then I can fill in the blanks that hasn't been covered in the podcast. That's right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, you give me a <laughs> done. <laughs> yeah, and then in the film, if we need to pass time, we'll just do one of the podcasts to you know travel two or two more years. Who who plays uh, Paris Barclay in the film version of your life? You know, no one really could, but. Um, I would say Leslie Odom Jr. probably could try. I mean, he's so good. Um, and I, I not only worked with him on Smash, but he was in One Red Flower when they did a Carnegie Mellon. Oh, wow. Yeah. He played uh, the captain, um, you know, the one black guy, uh, oddly enough, and was quite memorable. And I don't have a recording of that show. I was looking for it the other day because someone wanted to hear Leslie sing The Land of Make-Believe, which was the lieutenant's uh, actual big song but I, I don't have an extant recording of it, but it was the same production that Rory O'Malley also played your role. Uh, wow. Because uh, they were Carnegie Mellon students at the time. Wow. That's, I would have loved to have seen that too. Um, <laughs> gosh. Uh, and then also, because it was Clifton Walker when we did it here, Clifton Walker III, and... What was his other? Oh, Saigon T. He kind of led. Saigon T. Was 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 fantastic. I and love it's always that. Very popular. I find that song. You know, I feel a little sondimey about that song. It was so simple and one of the easiest songs to write because it's basically a, a riff on the Rolling Stones and you know, kind of a barrel house bluesy beat, and it would just fell together pretty quickly. And it it seems somewhat trivial and simplistic, um, yet the audience loves it. And it's one of those things that's hardest to do as a crowd pleaser. You know, and you feel as a big time musical theater writer that it doesn't go far enough and no one's moved by this song. And yet they keep talking about it. And it's it's sort of my send in the clowns that is sometimes sort of bet noir. He just hates when people say they love that song. Oh, it, it's it's because of the levity. It's because of the uh, camaraderie from the boys that you see that you need. You need that kind of moment of lightness before we go full dark, no stars, you know. <laughs> That's what I say. And we're going full dark, no stars. Since, you know, I'm not going to spoil it for those who haven't seen the play, which are Legion, but it's sort of a, and then there were none structure in that everyone comes to Vietnam in the beginning of the play, but everyone doesn't make it out. Right. And so as the play goes on, you start losing characters. Um, and that's always super painful for the audience as it becomes, oh, no, I hope it's not Billy. I hope it's not so-and-so as time goes on. Uh, but that's part of the, 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 the fabric of the play that makes it work is that it just, it's a ticking clock and you feel like it could envelope any of the characters you love. And, you know, that's such as war. 
Yeah, and that's oh, there's several TV shows, Netflix TV shows. I won't that like I love, but I'm I get so stressed out because they have no reverence for the characters' lives. Like anybody <laughs> could die at any moment, and you're just it it's insane to watch because there's not one person that you're like, no, they wouldn't kill them. You know. <laughs> well, that's what I felt with Mayor of Easttown when my now friend Evan Peters. I'm, and spoiler alert, doesn't make it to the end of the series. I was completely surprised and appalled because he's so good in it and you really start to care about him even though he comes in originally as someone that should be an antagonist. Um, and then they just dispense with him and it's brutal the way these television shows don't care about our feelings. Yeah, which means that One Red Flower would be a perfect fit for the <laughs> now, you know? Well, we've gotten a lot of people who think it would be terrific and a lot of people say, oh, it's so dark and war and a musical about war and it can't be done. And, you know, a musical about, you know, a guy who slits throats and turns them into meat pies is one of the most successful musicals of all time. So I always bring that up to people. I just say, if you can make that into a musical, I think we can do a little war. I mean, you could, it could always be set at like a prep school that's putting on a show that's like all men with like one of the teachers is playing the mom. And then that takes the pressure off of the, they learn a lesson. I don't know. There's something there. And they're alive. And, you know, it's funny that you should say that because one of the things we're toying with is it's also very, very effective just as a reading. Whenever we've done readings to develop it and people are just there in their street clothes just reading it on stands and doing very little staging, it really kills. It's so funny. It's just for some reason, people really get connected to just the characters in the simplest way. And and I think Signature sort of was the combination of production value and that simplicity. When we originally did it at North Shore, it was a half million dollar production. Right. I mean, we had rain, we had, you know, helicopters or something like helicopters. We had film and video flaring. We had a full orchestra with arrangements by Harold Wheeler. So it was quite big. And, and some people feel that really hurt it because the intimacy of it was lost. So we got to figure that out. There's a balance somewhere there. It's because, you know, the, because you said it was like a liturgical, it is a liturgical musical in a way. Uh, the book is liturgical it's like almost a perfect like radio play feel slash musical like that's why it does well at readings it, it, i mean stage radio plays have the same kind of feel of like your brain does all the working and you know and does all the imagery and it forces you into a place of imagining i just did a reading of the normal heart for uh, the one foundation with sterling brown and laverne cox and you know very you know mostly gay but you know also transgender and also differently abled people we did a whole reading of it just on zoom and it was hugely successful just seeing the faces of each of those characters in the normal heart and that's all in the little boxes of zoom and we produced it a little bit. They moved around and we did some stuff, but nothing much. And it killed. And, you know, the, once again, the intimacy sometimes can be a, a huge, you know, import and impact. Yeah. And you know what? Speaking of liturgical and letters and the, the show and how, you know what? The, one of the biggest things in the world right now is, is lyrical videos, right? Um, mm -hmm. just the, the videos that just show the lyrics and change the hue of the screen or like throw in a picture here and there. Um, that could be an interesting route to go as well, kind of honoring the letters. Yeah. That's very really interesting. And the documentary that was based on the same book, Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam, 
which is the book the musical is based on. It's just a collection of letters. A documentary was made of it that was very successful by Bill Couturier for HBO. And they basically just had, you know, film clips. It was film clips of Vietnam and kids and people and war happening and just, you know, famous people like Martin Sheen and Kevin Bacon and, uh, you know, reading the letters. And it was hugely, and they were just all off camera. All these famous people, it was just their voices. And you'd go, oh, is that Kathleen Turner or whatever as you went through it? But you, you just hear the sound and it worked great. So we have to find a simple way to do it. Yeah, because you could always have that applied to letters to uh, reenactment kind of style uh, filming of, you know, the young men in the in the place. Anyway, look at me. We're in a pitch anyway, meeting. There's lots of ways. <laughs> there's lots of ways to do it. But there's more to talk about. I'm sure you want to talk about more than that. Absolutely. Um, so I, I brought this up last time. I'm going to bring it up again because it's very important and I'm very proud of you. Uh, this this article in the Hollywood Reporter that came out in April, which is, you know, yesterday's news at this point. It's July. Wake <laughs> up, Stephen. But I just love this first sentence. Um, uh, you were the recipient of of uh, this year's DGA Honorary Life Member Award, and that's the Directors Guild of America, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a former president. This is what the sentence said, though. Frank Capra, Louis B. Mayer, Robert Wise, and now Paris Barclay. Um, and, and I said one of these things is not like the other, I believe. <laughs> and that's okay. Thank that's God. Okay. Hallelujah. <laughs> well, I said it in my speech, too. The very first time they gave the award 85 years ago was to D.W. Griffith. And it was super ironic that they're giving it to me this year after all these years and after everything we've been through in the past couple of years, actually, um, because no African-American had ever won that award. And it's, it's one of the guild's highest achievements for career achievement and for service to the guild. So I was particularly proud of it. And uh, it's a big, heavy ass trophy. It's, it's heavier than an Emmy. It's definitely uh, heavier than a Helen Hayes award. I must say. It's, it's got uh, it's got a good girth, a good heft. To it. <laughs> it's kind of good. It's got, I mean, and then you look on the list. I mean, it had Charlie Chaplin and, you know, all these heads of the studios that had received it before. It's just like, it's ridiculous that I'm now part sort of etched into that historical um, uh, lineage. But I think most of it comes from having been elected president of the Directors Guild twice. So I was elected for two two-year terms. And in that time, I spent a lot of time sort of fighting for diversity in the industry and trying to represent all the members well at the same time and, and maintain some equitability. And we had a lot of drama during that time. We had uh, we had uh, safety as a concern on sets because sets were getting increasingly unsafe. And so we had to deal with that and we had negotiations with the producers. So as a Directors Guild member on a board that has Steven Spielberg and Christopher Nolan and Michael Mann and Betty Thomas and, and lots of you know heavyweight directors, it was an honor to be like the person who got to bang the gavel down. So does that sit in the middle between your two Emmys? You don't know because <laughs> you're going to laugh, but there's no more room on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds like egocentric, but it's kind of the truth. I just don't have a shelf that can contain uh, that award. So right now it's sitting on the fireplace. Um, I'm not putting it in my bathroom anyway. My bathroom doesn't have the space for it, but it's on the uh, it's on the fireplace because I want my sons to really look at it too. And it's where we eat dinner and 
and when I took it, I actually sort of dedicated it to them and tried to give them a message of encouragement as they go into their adult lives. As black young men in America today, it's not gonna be necessarily easy. And so I tried to plead with them to find a tribe and find a group of like-minded people to, uh, to work with to make things better. It doesn't have to be the director's guild. I think neither one of them wants to be a director, but whatever industry you're in, you gotta do that. You have to dedicate at least some of your time, not just to getting your own, but to, to making sure everyone's taken care of. Right. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I mean, congrats on that award. The two Emmys are from NYPD Blue, which we didn't even get to. You have six other nominations and lots of shelves full of accolades, which you deserve. <laughs> well, I hope I do. I mean, I certainly tried to work for them. I mean, I, I was really um, in winning the Emmy. I mean, I know you guys are still looking for that Tony and I'm looking for that Tony, too. But winning the Emmy when I'd really been quite a young director, I'd only done maybe 10 episodes and I won the Emmy for Outstanding Direction of a Drama was um, unbelievable and unexpected because uh, there were lots of heavyweight competition during that time. But um, I always take those speeches as an opportunity to say something of import. And at that time, I wanted to encourage people who had recovered because I had just you know, somewhat recently recovered from a severe bout with alcoholism. So I wanted to use that speech in that case to uh, talk to those people and say, hey, it's possible that you can come back. Um, so I'm always trying to use these awards kind of as levers to uh, say something that's not about me because that may be from me, but isn't about how great I am, but how I can maybe touch somebody else's listening. Right. That's always important. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us again. Yes, yeah, well, my pleasure. We're going to do our three wrap-up things here. Um, oh, yeah. Three wrap-up questions that everyone gets. I hope I get the right answers. There's, there's no wrong one. Paris. Okay. Okay. Well, like, here, okay. Here I go. Uh, during the pandemic, everyone was learning different uh, vocations and learning languages and how to bake this and that. Skill sets. Did you, did you learn another vocation that wasn't under your belt? Uh, or would you rather talk about Hawaii? Super corny. But uh, I'm quite a good cook. I was a short order cook when I was a teenager. So I, I advanced my cooking skills and took some things to a new level. I tried making some things that I hadn't made uh, before. Um, and, you know, they're fairly complicated, like a crespeu. I don't know if any of you have ever had a crespeu. No. But, no. <laughs> but it's sort of like a 10-layer, um, not a cake, but a 10-egg layer um, dish where every layer is differently flavored. Like there'll be red peppers in one, there'll be, um, um, you know, I put um, mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms maybe. I didn't do mushrooms, that would really be good. But you do in cheese and you, it's vegetarian by and large. And, and it's wonderful. And then you press all the layers together and then it sits and it, they sort of congeal into a cake that you can slice like a cake, but it's this eggy, that is delicious. It takes hours, but it's well worth it. And yeah, I went through a number of different chocolate cakes until I found the perfect chocolate cake recipe. I did start baking my own bread early in the pandemic when bread was hard to come by. We got the old bread machine out and started baking bread. So I think cooking was the, the thing I did the most of because it kept me on my feet. And what did you binge watch? It, uh, at, or maybe nothing at all, but did you watch something you would have never have taken time to watch? Uh, nothing that I would never have taken the time to watch, but I did sort of uh, watch a lot more documentaries. I did find myself 
gravitating towards um, documentaries, the Pavarotti documentary, the Bee Gees. I like music-related documentaries. Um, lately, and this is now as we're coming out of the pandemic, I don't know if you guys have seen it, you've got to watch Summer of Soul. It's an extraordinary documentary. Um, I think it's on Hulu to give them props, but just about a, a lost concert in 1969 in Harlem, which happened to feature everyone fantastic at the time. Sly Stone, Gladys Knight and the Pips, you know, Mavis Staples, uh, Mahalia Jackson, you know, the Fifth Dimension, all these fantastic acts in 1969 in Harlem. And they give you a little history of it and it's wonderful. So I think documentaries became my 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 naughty pleasure. It was time. I've heard of it. Uh, one of our dear friends saw it yesterday, came over and said, you have to watch this. It's insane. It's so good. <laughs> It is really, really good and really moving um, and, and just weaving it in with the historical events of the time. And, and then you think they did this, they produced this thing and they shot it and then it stayed in the basement for 50 years. No one wanted to put it together because Woodstock was the thing that year and Woodstock took off. And you think today they'd say, well, we've got black Woodstock, but they didn't think that then. And so the film just rotted until Questlove and company dug it out and edited it into a fantastic documentary. Right, because they thought they were like insane because they remember this happening, but no one else knew what they were talking about. Basically, yeah, I had never heard of it. I, it's such an event that went on for six weeks that had all these incredible acts of the time. Never heard of it, and then you watch the documentary and you go, "What the hell?" It's it's amazing. It's just another example of you know when people can really dig into a culture. And it's my favorite year, nineteen sixty nine. You can really show a lot of of bravery and and in the music and spirit and soul and and what the struggle is all about. All right. And then Paris, lastly, um, uh, Matt is producing the album of our dear colleague, Susan Derry. It's a holiday album that's entitled, I wish it so. And it's been gotten uh, getting us thinking about wishes a lot and what a wish really means. Um, we're also working with another artist. Her name is Sushmita Mazumdar. Um, and she works with like booklet and paper art. I made this wish box thing where I've collected the wishes of every one of our guests. Um, and we're going to have an unboxing event to coincide with the album release event at Sushmita's uh, artist studio. Um, and it will kind of reveal where we were kind of as a collective artist society during the pandemic and coming out of it. Um, so I ask all of my guests the same question. If you were to wish for one thing for yourself, your family, the country, the world, what would that one thing be? Well, I'm going to change it from what I talked to you about last time, because now I think my wish is more that every artist would be inspired to make pieces of art, pieces of entertainment, if you will, that have this sole or at least primary goal of changing the world. The world is so in need of a reason. A lot of the media that we do, just as Will and Grace helped to change, you know, Biden's view of gay marriage, we need to do more and more pieces that show who we could be and that seduce the world into believing that they can and that we can love each other and that we can coexist and we can get beyond the fractious sort of period that we've been through. I feel right now it's an all hands on deck situation. If the crisis is so real, you know, the racism is so prevalent and so conspicuous and so um, now unashamed, just unabashed, that artists need to really dedicate themselves to what, what in my piece is going to make someone think differently 
um, and hopefully more favorably about the people who are standing right next to them. What can I do to promote tolerance and acceptance and, you know, God, you know, love? What can I do? Um, and I think we all need to do that. I think it's the time to do things that are just trivial in that are, are, is gone. So even the show I'm working on, Monster Now, really takes a focus on the victims of Jeffrey Dahmer in a way that hasn't been done before. And the systemic racism that allowed him to get on with this for years after the police had been called to his house and all these other things. So that that's a shift in focus that is a part of what the Times can do. So I'm just it's calling all our, all of us to arms. I think we have to we have to get together and individually and all together fight what's happening in the world today. And we can do it through our art. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Paris, thank right. you so much for spending not one, but two podcasts with us. We love well, you so much. Well, it's so great to have a second bite at the apple. It's just, you know, it's <laughs> super exciting. <laughs> we appreciate your time, and thank you so much. And all right. Thank you, guys, and best of luck with all of your musicals, and keep, keep bringing them out, and keep changing the world if you can. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paris. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye. Again, so thankful to Paris for uh, reaching out to redo the podcast. The audio is great this time. Thank you so much. And also the discussion was so much richer because it felt like the first interview that we did on Memorial Day. Was a tech rehearsal. It was a tech rehearsal. It was a uh, 10 out of 12. Yeah, and, and we got to delve into Monster that he is working on now and more news about One Red Flower, possible ideas for Netflix. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much, Paris. We love we, you. We love you. And we want to be in your team of... Uh, writer's room people so keep us in mind yeah call us we're very creative we've got lots of ideas have um, your people call our people which is just us yeah we don't have people it's just us we're just people yeah uh, if you want to know more about us people uh visit www.connorsmithmusicals.com that's connor with an er and then you can find us on facebook under connor and smith uh, please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast. It helps us out so much more than you would know. We are almost at the end of this season. So when you hear this, um, this is the penultimate episode. Uh, there's only one more in season one. Then we're taking a break. We'll be back with season two that's unofficially titled Into the Dark. Or Bump in the Night. Yeah, we're or we're exploring creepy things in September, October, and it's gonna be interesting. I think CNS stands for creepy and scary. Well, in September, October, it does for sure. Um, gonna be talking about things like uh, Oumuamua, the uh, strange thing that went through our solar system that's the first interstellar object that came through our solar system and hey what was that and but we were all talking about like politics so it's like it's like spam it's it's like what is that do you cook you eat it it didn't even make headlines yeah which is crazy we're going to be talking about the car blaze murder which is a thing that happened so stay tuned 
Yeah, lots of things. Lots, lots. Matthew is telling me not to give up all our secrets. Yeah, so. we want to keep that secret until we... I'm just trying to speak to all of our... If you go on uh, Facebook and see at least my Facebook stories, I'm leaking little images that give clues. Why is Stephen asking creepy stories on Facebook? This is why. Yeah, we're gathering a lot of information. Anyway... Um, we're really excited about the people we're going to be talking to, and I've talked for three minutes. So, as we always say, turn your heart into art, or scary stories for next time. I guess we have to find a new tagline for next season. Turn your scary stories into Turn your berries into scaries. Oh my god, let's stop and workshop this. Bye. Bye. Thank you.